alive. We are we are here to finish off this uh this this gauntlet. Let's call Good it luck. that. Let's Good gauntlet. Great gauntlet. Um, I, I think there were numerous times where I screamed, God damn you, this hell book, uh, a couple times at it throughout. Um, it's, <laughs> but I told you to change your life, and it did. It, oh, it did. Oh, it did. I, I can't. I, you're not wrong there. Um, but, but whoo. Ah, <laughs> uh, man. This is a, that is a vision journey through a sweat lodge of, of reading right there. And it is, okay. Whoo. Don't let Nathan discourage you. I don't know how you get no. this far if you are reading along. I was about to say, I can only say this now because if you've listened to this, either you have all the content or you've read it and you're done. So this is our victory lap for us at the end yes. that can admit we suffered through this, okay? Yes, but I mean, honestly, it's a good book to read. Um, I, again, encourage everyone to read along with it, to have yeah. your own discussion groups, but, and hopefully this can complement that. But if it's just your own reading on your own and gives you some kind of discussion with it, or if it's just a cliff notes, great. Any any way we can get these works. To I people. think we were. Dis- I was discussing it with someone the other day where I was trying to explain what why someone would want to listen to forty hours of this. Um, and and I think the best way I it's found shorter than the book still. No, that's what I said. I, my my explanation was: look, this is this is a fifty fifty. This is filling a gap that I thought that we thought there was. And we said this when we started when we wanted to record it because we were just going to discuss this yeah. anyway. But this is the fifty fifty middle ground between listening to the book on tape, yeah, and Spark Notes. Yeah. It's 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 like the happy medium. It's not going to be as long as the book on tape. It's not going to be as short as the Spark Notes, but it's going to give you a lot of the content while cutting out the stuff that's absolutely unnecessary and then contextualize it a little bit for well, you. Well, and again, you know, reading it yourself and and having your own discussions, I yes. think, is the healthiest. Yes, but whether that's not this practical is, for everybody. Uh, yeah, I mean, whether it's a cliff notes or discussion enhancement, this gives you the discussion and the tying back to modern times that just reading it alone with no discussion won't do. And some people. You know, most people are better readers than they get credit for. You know, this oh, idea yeah. that, oh, you're poor, you can't, you can't read Mark. It's the biggest load no of one, dumbassery. You know, you the, can read this book. It, pe- it's hard, not because it's a hard thing to read, but because it's a lot of words in a row and a lot of pages and a lot of scientific stuff that you don't have a lot of context for. Yeah, I mean, the revolutionaries in a black belt, the black belt that ended Jim Crow, yep. the revolutionaries in Vietnam under Ho Chi Minh, the revolutionaries under Mao, they they all use this book. Uh, the revolutionaries with Fidel, they use the, the or not just this book. The, Obviously, but, <laughs> just this one. Just, but they use different books from Marx and Engels and Lenin to teach people to read. So it's not like reading is this hard, but it does have some harder concepts and harder to comprehend sentences. And maybe it's better to have the content behind the theory um, and the other theorists he was clapping back at. It's yeah. better to have the way to tie it back to the modern times. And if you don't have an in-person discussion along with reading, it's better to discuss yeah. how this matters in your life. Yep. And uh, so hopefully we've given you all that enhancement and continue to with further works. Yes, 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 yes. Because uh, you're that, not getting rid of us that easy. That said, chapter 33. No! False! That said... Let's talk about another boring German oh, man. Oh, God damn it. Because we can't jump into 33. As, as we this talked is to... the actual boring German man. Oh, you hush. They're both, they're, yeah. Just because the one guy throws in some weird barbs on Ricardo doesn't make him less boring sometimes. <laughs> but yes, no, we are getting into the proto-boring German man with the creepiest hairline I've ever seen in the history of time, guys. Uh, and the reason we're going to start with, and we're talking about Hegel, by the way, if you haven't picked up on it. We're talking about Mr. Hegel. Um... The reason we're starting with this is because, in my opinion, and it is not my opinion, it is the opinion of someone way smarter than me, uh, again, by David Harvey, who is widely considered one of the preeminent modern experts on this book. So so I take his word on it and his insights on it uh, to heart. Yeah. Um, I would I would limit his expertise to exactly. capital. I'm not talking about anything he says outside of this book, but just for but how good insights Lord to this book. Good Lord is he good with it, yes. Yes. Um, and in that, he's, and it, it, feel, it felt that way the first time we read through it, and and then this really did bring it together, is 33 feels weird. 
Yeah, 33 feels... 32, we ended with, we expropriate the expropriators. The revolution is here. Huzzah! Raise the flags. And then we go back to this weird... Oh, all right, guys, calm down. No, forgot that. Stop, stop. Stop the revolution. <laughs> we got to explain some more stuff. Um, It doesn't make sense. And it's... And he never... Sp- it, it, Marx is not shy about uh, uh, calling out people he's calling out. Marx no. uh, has a tendency to do it. And yet, in this whole part, he never really calls out Hegel. And it's because he is dependent on Hegel. His entire like method of, of dialectic is created from Hegel. He respects Hegel, but there's yeah. a fundamental disagreement that he had with Hegel that he felt he needed to write himself with. And that's where... And 33 doesn't really fit anywhere else except... But he needed to get it in there to make sure he squared himself off against Hegel. He spent... 900 pages squaring himself up against Adam Smith and Ricardo. He's done that. He's going to spend like 10 pages here going, by the way, Hegel, you're wrong too. Um, but without saying it. So yeah. to and, do that... And that's important because you got to think, you know, it's not just that Marx is... He took dialectics from Hegel. He said, Hegel's got this right. And everyone was after Hegel at the time. Oh. There was the young Hegelians that Marx was a part of before he broke away. <laughs> Engels fished him out of there, thank goodness. Um, you know, I mean, well, he was breaking away from them anyway. But he met up yes, with Engels yes, and, and, yes, and started running into the materialism. But basically, Hegel is this dialectics, but it's applied the way all these other theorists do it, where it's apologizing for capitalism. It's twisting apologism and for white supremacy. And not that Marx doesn't have a white supremacist bone in his body or something like that. I wish it was true. Yeah, but, that'd be great. But he's very much generally against it, and his theory was the basis of anything in this world that's ever battled white supremacy. Yeah. Um, Mar- and so, you know, he took all these, these dialectics, said these are brilliant. Let's make the theory make sense and not be stupid and do this materialism <laughs> thing. And, oh, my God, these dialectics work perfectly with the materialism thing. And that's where you always get into contradictions. Contradictions, contradictions. Well, that's a he- that's Hegelian. Yeah. Everything's a contradiction. And you realize that there's a reason Hegel landed on that. And Marx was able to take that, become a materialist, and keep saying that's right. Just punt the idealism and still saying that's right. It's because clearly there there are these contradictions. Yeah, and that's and and as as someone that spent an entire semester course uh, reading Hegel, I don't recommend it to anybody ever, <laughs> ever under any circumstances. It's not worth it. This is, but I am going to do it again. I'm going to subject myself to something. I swore I burned the book at the end of that course. Um, I didn't even return it for the two fifty they would have given me. I literally lit it on fire because I was so enraged <laughs> by the amount of, of bullshit I had to get through with this man. But here we are again. I am about to read uh, a substantial amount from Hegel's philosophy of right because this is specifically the work that Marx is reacting to. And, and Marx get ugly because Hegel sucks. Yes, it sucks. <laughs> I'm gonna try and I'm gonna try and make it as bearable as possible. Um, but Marx specifically responded to the philosophy of right. There is a whole short Marx work in response to philosophy of right. Um, it, it, I don't think it where merits getting into here because we're gonna get into it as we go. Um, and it doesn't really do a good. He he really desperately in that one tries to not step on Hegel, but point out the parts of Hegel that are bad. Um, and it, it, he comes off just trying to apologize for the guy, and it doesn't make sense. Dunky so, Marx is best Marx. Exactly. So we're going to leave him to that, and we will dunk on Hegel for him. Uh, so, starting in the weird math, weird format that Hegel uses, 240, section 244. When the standard of living of a large mass of people falls below a certain subsistence level, 
a level regulated automatically as the one necessary for a member of the society. Get socially necessary. All the, yeah. you're, hearing the, you're hearing the language where Marx pulls this from. And when there is a consequent loss of the sense of right and wrong, of honesty and the self-respect which makes a man insist on maintaining himself by his own work and effort, the result is the creation of a rabble of paupers. At the same time, this brings in with it, at the other end of the social scale, conditions which greatly facilitate the concentration of disproportionate wealth in a few hands. Hey there! Hey, yeah. Hey, hey guys! Hey, Hegel, Hegel spotted this! Yeah, and you notice Hegel's already taking this in some kind of weird self-help twist. The, you know, the self-respect that, you know, I mean, he's tried to teach you, like, Taekwondo and Bound to Your Sensei because that will make you succeed. But he absolutely acknowledged that if you took away a person's ability to, to, it's addressing alienation. If you take someone away from their work and make it so that they have this sense of, of any connection to what they're doing... You get that, and Mark, Mark specifically talked about it. The 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 underclass again, bad word, not like proletariat, underclass, whatever you want to call them. But the people that just say, "Fuck this, I'm not participating in this system. This is bullshit," and recognize yeah. it. Um, they're they're addressed by capital, and then again, the the concentration of wealth. So so okay, hey, all right. Hegel sees what's going on. Hegel, sees, all right, maybe why did we need Marx if Hegel already spotted this? Um, additions. The lowest subsistence level that a rabble of paupers is fixed automatically, but the minimum varies considerably in different countries. In England, even the very poorest believe that they have rights. This is different from what satisfies the poor in other countries. And this is ab- that's absolutely objectively true. When you talk about poverty in certain places, poverty in America is vastly different than poverty in India. It's vastly different than poverty in Indonesia. It's going to vary everywhere. Your scale of poverty does not change poverty it just changes what it what the conditions yeah, are and you caught country. a little bit it's going to be less subtle with the white supremacy as we go forward but oh, you caught yeah. a little bit with the people in in england basically saying that their level of poverty is different he says you know they believe themselves to have rights and some that they believe um, themselves to have rights those wild idiots those wild you know and it's it's like you know oh yeah well the first world's better because people believe in freedom and yeah. and and uh, there's already this stuff that that you see these right wingers have built yeah. their their white supremacist bullshit on you know yeah. so yeah. for the record neither of us are standing for for mr hagel uh, no 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 this is nothing but f hagels yeah um poverty in itself does not make men into a rabble a rabble is created when they are joined to poverty a disposition of mind an inner indignation against the rich against society against the government and a further consequence of this attitude is that their dependence on chance men become frivolous and idle like the neapolitan lazarini for example i got no idea what that reference is to um, but again you see it being poor doesn't make you a rabble being poor and recognizing who your oppressors are and recognizing that it is a structural issue and not a natural issue is what makes you a rabble. And here comes the good stuff. In this way, there is born in the rabble the evil of lacking self-respect enough to secure subsistence by its own labor, and yet at the same time of claiming to receive subsistence as its right. They, they feel they Kids should just, just need to be taught respect. They feel that they should survive without having to work. Those goddamn welfare queens and all this. It's <laughs> little. I mean, you could literally just like copy paste this into any Reagan speech and it sounds exactly the same. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, against nature. Now, this is this is the big one. This is the big one. Against nature, man can claim no right. But once society is established, poverty immediately takes the form of a wrong done to one class by another. The important question of how poverty is to be abolished is one of the most disturbing problems which agitate modern society. 
they recognized what was going on here. They recognized what they did wasn't natural. They recognized that you had to some way ameliorate this problem or it was going to cause it was going to cause problems. Now, whereas Marx and the gang are interested in fixing that in the interest of, of bettering society, uh Hangle and them were more worried about how do we fix this while maintaining our, our nice little privilege position. Right, yeah, I mean, you, you hear Hegel is basically like, well, if nature caused this, no one would care. It's that society caused this, and these whiny poor people think that me- makes them have this right. You know, I mean, it's... Yeah, yeah I mean... So, uh, continuing on, because I want to spend as little time on this old... <laughs> when the masses begin to decline into poverty, the burden of maintaining them at their ordinary standard of living might be directly laid on the wealthier classes, or they might receive the means of livelihood directly from other public sources of wealth, e.g. from endowments of rich hospitals, monasteries, and other foundations, the Bill and Melinda Gates of the world. In either case, however, the needy would receive subsistence directly, not by means of their work, and this would violate the principle of civil society and the feeling of individual independence and self-respect in its individual members. Holy crap, means testing, people. Means testing! Oh, just uh, as an alternative, they might be given substance indirectly through being given work, i.e., the opportunity to work. Job creators. Yeah, Look at this oh guy. <laughs> Job creators. Uh, in the event, the volume of production would be increased, but the evil consists precisely in an excess of production and in the lack of a proportionate number of consumers who are themselves also producers. And thus, it is simply intensified by both of the methods, A and B, by which it is sought to alleviate it. It hence becomes apparent that despite an excess of wealth, civil society is not rich enough, i.e. its own resources are insufficient to check excessive poverty and the creation of a pernicious rabble. Okay. We don't have enough money to just give them everything they want. And if we do that, they're lazy, and that makes us resent them. Uh, Fuck off. Uh, Two, (laughs) if we gave them all jobs, there wouldn't be enough people to buy the shit we're making, and therefore there'd be too much stuff, and we wouldn't make money, and oh god, they would have too much money, and then we'd have a problem. Fuck, well, guess we can't cure poverty. Oh, guess we can't cure poverty. That sucks. That's too bad. That is shit. Oh, well, that's that's too too stinky. Even though there's excessive wealth, can't cure poverty. That's too bad. I, I anyway, see a contra- I'm going to go get another yacht. I see a contradiction coming. I see a contradiction. <laughs> in the example of England, we may study these phenomena on a large scale, and also in the particular, the results of poor rates, immense foundations, unlimited private beneficence, and above all, the abolition of the guild corporations. In Britain, particularly in Scotland, the most direct measure against poverty, and especially the loss of shame and self-respect, <laughs> the subjective basis of society, Jesus, as well as against laziness and extravagance, the begetters of the rabble has turned out... Out to be to leave the poor to their fate and instruct them to beg in the streets. Okay. To 46. So, again, the, every time we move to one of these sections, it's it's con, it's usually a contradiction, you know, a, a statement, a contradiction, and then a synthesis of some sort. Uh, this inner dialectic of civil society thus drives it, or at any rate drives a specific civil society to push beyond its own limits and seek markets. And so its necessary means of subsistence in other lands, which are either definite in the goods it has over, or deficient in the goods it has overproduced, or generally backward in industry. Hmm. Guys, Hegel figured it out. We're gonna solve poverty with colonization. Yes. Woo! Ah, we guys, don't have to read Lenin. We just have to colonize, and it'll be okay. <laughs> it's fine. We just find people that don't have the widgets we want to make and sell them our widgets. Life's good. Right. Just And tell people that those oil reserves that they have, they're just not smart enough to get to them. Why would anybody want those? They're terrible oil reserves. It. Oh, God. All right. Blowing through. 
The principle of family life is dependence on the soil, on land, terra firma. Similarly, the natural element for industry animating its outward movement is the sea. Since the passion for gain involves risk, industry, though bent on gain, yet lifts itself above it. Instead of remaining rooted to the soil in the limited circle of life with its pleasures of desires, it embraces the element of flux, danger, and destruction. Guys, oh my god. Oh, but entrepreneurs risk their investments and they take risks and that's why they deserve all the... They got on boats and went into the sea. Therefore, they deserved anything they found on the other side. Like, it's the same fucking arguments over right. and you over again. You have to dehumanize the victims. You have to. Further, the sea is the greatest means of communication. That's just not right. And trade by sea Maybe creates... Maybe it was at the time. Sure. <laughs> when, there, when, when you had the map and there was a sea dragon in the bottom right corner, I guess. But uh, after that, not really. At the same time, commerce of this kind is the most potent instrument of culture. And through it, trade acquires its significance in the history of the world. Oh, God. All right. Last section. 248. This far-flung connecting link affords the means for colonizing activity, sporadic or systematic, to which mature civil society is driven and by which it supplies to a part of its population a return to life on the family basis in a new land, and so also supplies itself with a new demand and field for its industry. Literally, the theory is you would get so overpopulated, and this is, again, this is Hegel's dialectic answer to how do you keep capitalism from eating itself. Is when you get to a certain point that you're so big that you have a rabble. In his definition, a bunch of poor people that hate the rich and want to murder them, but you can't give them jobs because that will... We talked about how capitalism has to have an unemployed mass at the bottom, and so they can't risk affecting that. Your solution is go colonize. Because then you can take your rabble... Shift them off, let them become small, petty bourgeois in the new land, rise up, create a new section for capitalism, they expand, then you can sell your excess shit that you're making to them, the circle continues. Now, for all the reasons that that is not an answer because we're fucking out of places to colonize, even if we wanted to, chapter 33 is directly Marx's answer to, no, 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 no. No, 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 Mr. Hegel. That is not how this works, and I'm going to show you why it's not how that works. Because this was kind of the end statement on it for a long time. Yeah. Is This is how very smart, intelligent Aaron Sorkin watching 14th century explorers uh, decided that it, it was justifiable to do their to do their <laughs> their imperialism. Is well, but it, ha we, it keeps our people happy, and, it, like, and it, 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 again, they talk about how it helps the other market. Well, these colonized people are deficient in in the things that we make. They need our Ottomans. They need they need the they, Ottomans need our Ottomans. God damn it! They need their technology that's handed down from the white man. Yeah, they they desperately know this, so we're gonna and, go we're gonna go colonize their land, and here we go. Yeah, and this should obviously be blatantly white supremacist. Holy cow! Holy God. Yeah. It's These not people even close. don't matter on the other end. We're just taking care no. of business. We're the only ones. We colonize not because we're Europe and, and we've just decided we're better than everyone. We colonize because we're the more advanced one. They've just gotten to this point where we have to branch out from our big rabble. And obviously, and he accidentally kind of lets on something, too. And it's something I wanted to mention before. I think I tried to dabble around. I think I might have even directly addressed, but awkwardly. Uh, there's a contradiction in white supremacy and poor white people is you cannot say, if you're poor and white or white at all, that white supremacy doesn't help you. Okay? Oh, no. no, it, no, no it gives no. you all these, the, the fruits, the golden golden links to the, to your chains. Yeah. You know, I mean, you, you expect to go to the store and just 
buy abundant food. Well, America's not loaded with food makers that like they used to. America goes and gets cell phones. Where do you think the materials for the batteries and the the uh, uh, microchips and the cell phones come from? <laughs> the mining, you know, I mean, we're used to colonization, but at the same time, white supremacy doesn't help us because that is the solution by the wealthy, you know. And there, there's several other things they got to get you on board with the colonization. We're just doing human rights stuff, and and oh, there's poor kids starving in Africa, so eat your peas or you know whatever. All the, the aid, crap. all the aid to Venezuela that's just going to so happen to get us cheap oil once we once we go ahead right. and take care of them Happens with our aid. to be less and they're sanctioning away and Red Cross is totally not already there in telling the U.S. not to politicize aid. If you actually believe, I don't get the people that believe in the Red Cross enough to do, donate to hurricanes and then not listen to them about no, Venezuela. Not, oh, oh. It's like Red Cross will fuck you over. But they're also actually doing some things in other countries and telling you not to politicize this shit. Mental, the mental uh, And all while we ignore what's going on in Haiti because, you know, that's <sighs> that's our puppet government. And because, hey, yeah, Haiti, we have a long story. Oh, the long West has a long history. storied history of ignoring Haiti yeah. until it becomes problematic Attacking for us. Haiti. Yeah. Very much yeah so. They yeah, will never yeah. stop being punished for being the first slave rebellion. Um, but that said, you know, I mean, there's a contradiction, right? White supremacy really does help you. But it really does hurt you. You're never going to end what I said before. You're never going to have your resolution no. without eliminating white supremacy. You're never going to have a just white revolution of the poor. You have to genuinely reach down and care about your your black and indigenous people of color, brothers and sisters, and their racialized causes that you may benefit from. You have to be a class trader there. Yep. You have to look at these nationalized things. And and like you know, Lenin said, you're, stop fighting for your your overlords, your masters against your brothers and sisters. You know, take take a world war and turn it into a civil war, right? I mean, protect them. You you have to understand that that a working person in Palestine or uh, Venezuela, you know, yeah. or uh, Zimbabwe or, you know, the, these people, they, oh, they're taking the land back from these white farmers. They're facing so much violence, even though white farmers are 3% of the population, right. own like 90% of the land they're, from the old apartheid days in South Africa. They're still. literally, there are 1%. There are Jeff Bezos. They're, they're taking their shit back from their version of Jeff Bezos, people. They're literally doing basic reparations to yes. decolonize. We should support that and not fall for those stories. You know, I mean, those people are more on your side than, than fucking uh, some army captain, some fucking and, cop. So Jeff Bezos, but, you know, those guys are all American. They're the protecting America. Don't listen to that bullshit. Even more localized, even more even more applicable to what we're dealing with right now. I think the political parties in this country, the concept that we are fighting against, that we, that, that okay, well, we're, we're Democrats or we're leftists or we're whatever and we're fighting conservative. No, no, stop, stop trying to make it backwoods yokels versus enlightened, no. We, well, and, and I'll even class. take that way too, because it's 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 much less conservative when you go out in the boonies than people think, you know. But you have a lot more in common with these people that that don't vote, that that protest vote. Not voting would have won the presidential election if that could be president, you know. And those people are are, are definitely they understand, you know, these two parties aren't going to help you. No, they're run by ruling class douchebags. But if we're going to have any sort of tangible movement, I mean the the. The theoretical number I think that gets ballot around is what? Something like three and a half percent of a population is what you would need mobilized in order to to shut down a government. You need three and a half percent. Which means you need eleven in America you need eleven million people. Yeah. You need eleven million active Ready to go, committed people, and obviously you to know, do something. But that's why you've got to focus on these like community of colors, yes. and you got we got to do Every, better in rural organizations. Yes, big time. 
Uh, but even communities of color, rural is a big thing. What, what the hell do you think the black belt is? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and the rural population in the black belt it was really what caused a lot of the, the end of Jim Crow. They fought for themselves, you know, the, the civil So describe, d- d- give, give, give context on the black belt for, for people Oh, yeah, so when you see Democrats say, like, oh, yeah, um, you know, if Alabama and Mississippi and Florida just go out to the sea, who cares, you know? What it is is you've got to realize the, the history of this country. You know, it was entirely a slave plantation, north to south at first, and it was all genocide of indigenous people. And we talked about indigenous people are the other group that is hit as hard as black people in this country. And then all the other people of color are hit much harder than us white people. Oh, my God, yes. But but way behind black and indigenous people, okay? Correct. Well, indigenous people are just being genocided across the board, whereas black people are brought over in chattel slavery and, and turned into slaves. Well, it was a lot more productive for plantations to be in the south. So the south cotton plantations, things blew up. And in the north, you had the industrial area. And that's how the Civil War happened. That's why it was south and north. The north wasn't people that are just ideologically better, the good people. No, they, they were shit. They were profiting off the factory workers. And they what were the just as segregated. They gave no shits about... about rights for African Americans. Right, right. It's just no fuss. It's just there's always these liberals that something's too gross. Yeah. You know, I mean, the wars the Democrats do that that bomb buses full of children, who gives a shit? But I see a Republican bomb someone and it's a little too gross. Well, you know, I have this racist prison structure and that's that's bad for me. I have these thousand black people shot in the streets and that's bad for me. But I find out that the black person is unarmed. And and all of a sudden, that's too much for me. There's this line. Well, the North, collectively, they weren't invested in these plantations. So they had that line. Slavery's too much. Yeah. And they were willing to die to not cross that line. Yeah. Um, because those lines are a big deal to people. But they were willing to go right up to it. So, of course, most of the black population is in the South. You had the Underground Railroads and stuff coming north. Most of the black population is in the South. That's where the slaves are. So at the end of the Civil War, the reason Jim Crow broke out there, the reason those are still by far the most oppressive um, laws against the poor, the largest and poorest black population is in the old plantation areas. Uh, I think there's quite a bit in, in Florida, but I know for sure the biggest goes from Georgia through Alabama and Mississippi to Louisiana, especially the like the Baton Rouge and northern New Orleans area. And that's called the Black Belt. And so, you know, Harlem is a big black population. Chicago's got a big black population. L.A.'s got a big black population. St. Louis here, you know, Ferguson, the north side, got a big black population. And normally in the north, it's very urban. Not yeah. necessarily, but generally. But that's how you, th- you think, okay, urban tends to air more uh, pe- uh, people of color and, and you know, and then the, the rural areas, you tend to think of more white folk for whatever reason. Yeah. Uh, if you go to the south, it's more rural, the black population. And that's the much larger, even though it's very much more spread out, the much larger and the much poorest. Poorest black areas. And you can see the segregated poverty here. You can go to Normandy High School, almost got shut down. By far yeah. the poorest high school in the St. Louis area here, right yeah. up there by UMSL. Yep. None of that poverty touches what's in the black belt. Wow. You know, I mean, that's that's where you get the the joking around about uh, the black people, like you saw the black Jeopardy on SNL and joking around about yeah. the broom, you know, hitting the floor, yeah. the duct tape car. You know, I mean, that because there's, there's extreme poverty in the area. Yeah. You know, um, so that 
That's what the black belt is. So whenever you see these liberals that are like, well, who cares about you know Alabama, Florida, you know, see, they're, they're telling on themselves. They don't actually care about black people. They care about feeling good, feeling better yes. about themselves. I'm the good white guy. Yeah. That's all I care. I'm the good wealthy person. That's all I care. I clapped back to Kamala Harris. Never mind that she's a cop. How dare you point at that black woman? Never. Who cares about her victims that yeah. were mostly black of the carceral state with her as a DA? You know, and that's that's what they have. You know, of course, these are people that cheerled the Clintons. After the crime bills in the nineties, yeah, no, and still stand for the Clintons. Still like, will the not Clintons. die. Hardcore. That, They're still caught in twenty sixteen. They're off. desperately. Oh, so. right. And then and they act like this. Well, the Clintons, of course, with their racism, they had slaves in the government buildings in Arkansas, things like that. But also, you know, Trump was from fucking New York. Yeah. I mean, it's very clear that racism, while it is much more abundant and and it's much clearer and it's spread into the poorer class better in the South because there is going to be some of that head-to-head conflict over resources because of how bad the the care for poor people is in the South. And it's super easy to not think you're racist or not think you have to deal with racism when you're... Where where I went to high school, there, there, you know, I, I thought... Oh, I'm a racist. I don't. I don't have any issues with that. There were two black people in my high school. Yeah. Well, okay. Yeah, by pure exposure, I don't have any reason. Like, I, I never deal with it. If it's a, it, the the day to day reality is is that you're you're in conflict for things. You you think, and again, because we've talked about this, capitalists do a great job of pitting anybody against each other so that you don't look up and see where the real problem is. Yeah. It, it, of course you're going to develop mechanisms to try. You have to. Here you do it with, you do it based on education. You do it based on whatever, but down there you would do it, you would do it on racism because everyone is so much more, so much more day to day. You're, you're actually interacting with people of another race. So you, you develop your little defense mechanisms to justify it's slavery and, and all sorts of other fun things. Yeah. So, I mean, these are your revolution. These are your brothers and sisters, not not the people over there. So don't fall no. for Hegel's, like, you know, don't fall for the contradiction that Hegel explicitly points out where we're running, we're running out of this, you're going to rabble our solution, go take it out on some other people that are over there. Mm-hmm. They don't matter. Because that that is the solution, but it's not a good solution, and it leaves you in this oppressed state. And so it's working for you, but in a very immoral way, and it's working against you, specifically against the only other people that can help you break this immoral structure. Yep. So you have to, you have to be, you have to have decolonization and anti-imperialism first. You and have foremost. to... Yeah, and for none, none of this, none of this. Well, you have we... to have anti-racism. Like class, I mean, this stuff is done through class, right? I mean, immigrants are a lower class. Other people in other countries that we bomb, you know, and we're made poor in the global south, are of course going to be a lower class, going to be poorer than us. Black people, so it's done through class. So you can't not revolve things around class. So I don't want to like say class, you know, anyone who who doesn't put class first yeah. is having a problem. But you also can't be a class reductionist. Okay. You just cannot do that. Okay. These these racial race misogyny uh, nationalism these are all too important of issues to just cast aside because you think class will magically fix it. Okay. But you can't fix any of those issues without addressing class because that's the primary source of those oppressions. So actually getting to the the, the text that we were talking about thirty <laughs> minutes later, actually getting into the marks again. But again, this is all this is all setting up why this chapter even is, is here. Yeah. Um so chapter thirty three, the modern theory of colonization. Political economy confuses on principle two different kinds of private property. 
one of which rests on the labor of the producer himself and the other on the exploitation of the labor of others. It forgets that the latter is not only the direct antithesis of the former, but grows on the former's tomb and nowhere else. Ooh, welcome back, Marks. Oh, welcome back. Oh, Hagel, Hagel left me crying. That's what you got to do. You, you eat your vegetables so your cookie tastes so much better. Thank you. Thank yes, you, man. Yes. It is otherwise in the colonies. There, there, the capitalist regime constantly comes up against the obstacle presented by the producer, who, as an owner of his own conditions of labor, employs that labor to enrich himself instead of the capitalist. Again, when we talk about the colonies, uh, mm-hmm. specifically America. This is America. When you say the colonies, insert America. I may do it if I can. Yeah. Um, but, but know that this is during the time when, when Western Europe still considered them the colonies. Yeah. Uh, the contradiction between these two diametrically opposed economic systems has its practical manifestation here in the struggle between them. Where the capitalist has behind him the power of the mother country, he tries to use force to clear out the ways and modes of production and appropriation which rest on the personal labor of the independent producer. The same interest which in the mother country compels the sycophant of capital, the political economist, to declare that the capitalist mode of production is theoretically its own opposite, this same interest in the colonies drives him to make a clean breast of it and to proclaim aloud the antagonism between the two modes of production. To this end, he demonstrates that the development of the social productivity of labor, cooperation, division of labor, application of machinery on a large scale, and so on are impossible without the export expropriation of the workers and the corresponding transformation of their means of production into capital. In the interest of the so-called wealth of the nation, he seeks for artificial means to ensure the poverty of the people. Here, his apologetic armor crumbles off piece by piece like rotten touchwood. Oh, Marx. Marx is key. Oh, Marx. Marx is key. So again, they're, they're, look at how they look at how they change their tune the second their conditions change look at how they're constantly trying to the, the same arguments they use for why we had to do capitalism here when it works against them in in the colonies they oh well we but we back it up and we complain we we say it's different and we need to do it differently this time because it's natural so now we're getting to the guy who i consider to be the entire crux of chapter 33 and his name is eg wakefield uh eg wakefield was uh essentially a a middle-class white guy from what i understand his background is very unimportant to what he was uh but at the end of the day he was a he was he, he considered himself an economist one of the classical economists um uh, and and he was concerned with uh australia because that's where he went yes um, which is another colony much like exactly australia and america are the two greatest examples of what this system should have been able to do um in the concept of you have two giant oh uh, you know virgin land fertile soil Nobody there, nobody at all. Just everyone free of free of people that you had to worry about. No indigenous. David, you're supposed to cut me off when I'm no, obviously glossing over the indigenous population that we slaughtered. You're fine. You're fine. No, you're just fine, let me fine. just let me die on that vine, aren't you? Okay. Cool. No. Yeah. I know. I know. I know what you're. Okay. What you're making fun okay, of. Okay. All right. Good. Sorry. So, sorry. No. Was, no. No. Just making nope, sure. Okay. Just make sure everyone yeah. was awake. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And 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 so theoretically, well, hey, if we show up. And we, we do all the, the things that we know capitalism is good at. Well, then this should be fine. We'll see it re- replicate itself and everyone will get wealthy and the life will be good. All right, let's go. Let's go have it out. <laughs> Mr. Wakefield did that and he went to Australia. It is the great merit of E.G. Wakefield to have discovered not something new about the colonies, but in the colonies, the truth about capitalist relation in the mother country. 
Just as the system of protection originally had the objectives of manufacturing capitalists artificially in the mother company, mother country. <laughs> so, I mean, country, same thing. Pretty well, yeah. Freudian slip, it's the same thing. Uh, so, Wakefield's <laughs> theory of colonization, which England tried for a time to enforce by act of parliament, aims at manufacturing wage laborers in the colonies. This is what he calls systematic colonization. So, again, Wakefield showed up and made some very quick realizations. Mm-hmm. Um, the first one relates to a Mr. Peel. And, uh, oh, man, guys, just imagine Mr. Peel with a monocle and a top hat and all sorts the of fun. The Monopoly guy. Imagine him as Mr. Moneybags because that's basically he, he's who he is. Mr. Moneybags, yeah. Mr. Peel took off for the new land. Uh, he was a capitalist here here in, in good old England, and he took off for, for Western Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Peel, he complains, took with him from England to Swan River, uh, the means of subsistence and of production to the amount of 50,000 pounds. So we had 50,000 pounds worth of stuff to make stuff and, and food and all and, and money, all of it lumped together, but equal to 50,000 pounds, yeah. which at the time was a fuckload of money, yes. like a metric shit ton. Uh, this Mr. Peel even had the foresight to bring besides that 3,000 people of the working class, men, women, and children. He brought the rabble with him. That's right. Let's bring go, the rabble. rabble. Bring them on. So again, in, 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 back in the country, they were... They were, they were working for their subsistence. They were wage laborers, for lack yeah. of a better word, is what this class was. Um, and once he arrived in Australia, Mr. Peel was left without a servant to make the bed or fetch him water from the river. Unhappy Mr. Peel, who provided for everything except the export of English relations of production to Swan River. Again, capitalism isn't a natural thing. It's not a, it's not a common thing. It's not a natural state of being. It is it is relations of things. It is class relations. It is social relations and how you exploit those in order to get what you need. Mm-hmm. For the understanding of the following discoveries of Wakefield, let us make two preliminary remarks. We know that the means of production and subsistence, while they remain the property of the immediate producer, are not capital. They only become capital under circumstances in which they serve at the same time as means of exploitation of and domination over the worker. Yes. But this, their capitalist soul, is so intimately wedded in the mind of the political economist to their material substance that he christens them capital under all circumstances, even when they are its exact opposite. Thus it is with Wakefield. Further, he describes the splitting up of the means of production into the individual property of many mutually independent and self-employed workers as equal division of capital. The political economist is like the feudal jurist who used to attach labels supplied by feudal law even to relationships which were purely monetary. Again, they're trying to, they they go, well, well, he's got all this capital because he has all this stuff and these things. So why isn't his capital making more capital? The system isn't working. Where's the breakdown? The breakdown is if the people don't need your capital to survive, if they can go off on their own and you're not uh, taking them off the land and taking away their own means of subsistence, yeah. they're not going to work for you. Yeah, I mean, Your spinning wheel is not capital if you don't have a laborer to spin it on. Yeah, I mean, here's the thing. Means of production and means of subsistence are capital as long as there are laborers that need that subsistence. Yes. If they have their own subsistence, why the hell would they work for you? We've been through this. And that's what you know, Marx says. What money money isn't really capital. It becomes capital in capitalism. Yeah. Property isn't really capital. Owning your house isn't actually capital. But shit, we sell our houses for profits these days. Mm-hmm. You know, there's or house we borrow, we borrow, you borrow against your house. Home equity yeah. lines of credit are a huge deal. You basically have, you know, you're spending off of your house. Yeah, I, there's, there's the great instigators of gentrification, other than, of course... You know, uh, business high rises and and uh, cops, and that's that's the house flippers. Mm. You know that that's houses for a fucking profit, but they're not inherently that. You know, yeah. it's capitalism that creates that relation. Yep. Uh, 
So long, therefore, as the worker can accumulate for himself, and this he can do so long as he remains in possession of his means of production, capitalist accumulation and the capitalist mode of production are impossible. The class of wage laborers essential to these is lacking. How, then, in old Europe was the expropriation of the worker from his conditions of labor brought about? In other words, how did capital and wage labor come into existence? Guys, we've spent a long time just talking about that. I don't know why he's asking that goddamn question right now. We spent 900 pages talking about it. Why would you ask that question right now, Marks? Goddamn. By a social contract of quite original kind, mankind have adopted a simple contrivance for promoting the accumulation of capital, which of course had dangled in front of them since the time of Adam as the ultimate and only goal of their existence. They have divided themselves into the owners of capital and the owners of labor. That was nice of them to do, yeah. just to divide themselves like that. Very nice. This division was the result of concert and combination, a.k.a. hand wave. Hand wave, hand wave. Ignore, ignore the man behind the curtain. Don't, don't pay attention to all That's that stuff right. we just talked about in chapter Everybody 32. Everybody just sang Kumbaya and spun around in yeah. circles. And all thanks. that shit we've just talked about last episode. Ignore thanks, it. E thanks, E.G. Wakefield. Yeah. In short, the mass of mankind <laughs> expropriated itself in the honor of accumulation of capital. Now, one would think this instinct of self-denying fanaticism would especially run riot in the colonies. The only place when men and conditions exist to turn a social contract from dreaming to reality, you have the Petri dish. This is going to happen. It's going to go boom because this is the way it's going to go. They saw it. They came from England. They knew exactly how it's supposed to go. So now that they have the blueprint, they're going to run with it, right? No, absolutely not. They absolutely didn't do it, and they wouldn't do it, and they couldn't figure out why. We have seen that the expropriation of the mass of the people from the soil forms the basis of the capitalist mode of production. We talked about that. The essence of a free colony, on the contrary, consists in this, that the bulk of the soil is still public property, and every settler on it can therefore turn part of it into his private property and his individual means of production without preventing later settlers from performing the same operation. This, again, is a little bit of Marx just kind of forgetting that there are indigenous people. But fine, we'll give you a pass. Um, because, yes, the theory being is that America, compared to England, was so huge yeah. that every member of the rabble could show up, pick a plot of land equal to the old feudal fiefdom, sit on it, and the next guy wouldn't have to come over and cut your throat to get that. He would just have to go to Indiana. And yeah. then he could have his own. And and I think Marks, I I think I'm probably giving him a little too much leeway. He might be apologizing for it because again, it's not like there's not a white supremacist bone in his body. But he did have the theory that cracked against that. I think it's it's either him trying too hard to not be too mean to Hegel, or or more likely he was just like, look, this very much is no, the petri he, dish, and he didn't want to come off subject. And more importantly, he material conditions again. Yeah. He wasn't whether whether we want to admit it or not white people going in and wiping out indigenous people and taking their land and Just getting their assumed. plot, none of that was not actually factual. Like, him not bringing it up is not him pretending it didn't exist. That was just the nature of the thing. If you wanted to come in and have your property, you were going to do it. It's kind of the whole genocide thing we did. Yeah. This is the secret both of the prosperity of the colonies and of their cancerous affliction, their resistance to the establishment of capital. Oh, oh, talk dirty to me, Marks. Where land is very cheap and all men are free, where everyone who so pleases can easily obtain a piece of land for himself, not only is labor very dear, as respects the laborer's share of the produce, but the difficulty is to obtain combined labor at any price. No matter how much you pay people, 
They would not go from being free farm holders, free shareholders, working for themselves to going to work for you. This little natural thing where I, everyone's lazy and some of them want to come over and work for me and there's this natural. No, it wouldn't recreate itself. It wouldn't do it. It's because like a side, what gold does that money it, bring you? This You're not going to be able to sway someone else. You're, you already work for yourself. This is literally science. It's, it's, you kind of feel bad for them a little bit because it's like they had these great, they're, oh, we got these big ideas and okay, we figured it out. And then we're going to say, this is our experiment. We can finally experiment and figure it out. All right, we're going to do our experiment. We've set it all up. Go. And it's like when you created your version of The Sims. And then they just light the house on fire and start f***ing <laughs> everybody. And it's, it's like, that scene no! from Community where uh, uh, Childish like, Gabriel wants to eat pizzas. And the, everything's on fire. They're all putting it out. It, it's it's literally, it's it blew up so spectacularly. And they couldn't see why. They couldn't understand it. <laughs> Except they did. They very much understood it. And that's what comes next. Uh, though the produce divided between the capitalist and the laborer be large, the laborer takes so great a share that he soon becomes a capitalist. Few, even of those who li whose lives are unusually long, can accumulate great masses of wealth. Hey, guys, the system was working as they promised you it would. That you could work a little bit and become wealthy. So they must love this, right? Yeah. It works. It proves it. Oh, fuck. No, they hated it. They hated it. They were terrified. The workers most emphatically refused to let the capitalists abstain from paying for the greater part of their labor. Your, your uh, variable capital is getting real tight. Real, real tight. You are not exploiting a whole lot of their labor. It is of no assistance to him if he cunningly imports his own wage laborers from Europe with his own capital. They soon cease to be laborers for hire. They become independent landowners, if not competitors, with their former masters in the labor market. Horror of horrors! The excellent capitalist has imported bodily from Europe with his own good money, his own competitors. The end of the world has come. It's, uh, it's so, God, God, it's so good. Um, but it was that. They, they kept pumping in people, pumping in people, because in, in England, they didn't understand it. They're like, if, I could just throw more people at the problem. I can keep throwing people at it, and they'd keep coming back. And in America, it was like, you kept throwing people at it. And they come just going, thanks for the money, bye! And then they leave. And it's like, what? what's wrong with these people? They're broken. It's like, no, your system sucks, dude. <laughs> no wonder Wakefield laments the absence of both relations of dependence and feeling of dependence on the part of the wage laborer in the colonies. On account of the high wages, says his disciple Maribel, there is in the colonies an urgent desire for cheaper, more subservient workers, for a class of people to whom the capitalist may dictate his terms instead of having terms dictated by them. In the old civilized countries, the worker, although free, is by a law of nature dependent on the capitalist. In colonies, this dependence must be created by artificial means. Again, that's not Mark saying that, that's them saying that. They said, well, in England, it's just natural that they're dependent on us. Um, but over here, since these little bastards won't uh, get in line and uh, and become wageless slaves, uh, we're gonna have to we're gonna have to you know uh, maybe make some rules to make sure that that happens. Um, <laughs> Again, we just spent the whole last couple chapters talking about how the state enforces capitalism. Welcome to the most pure, Absolutely. obvious, holy fuck version of that in the history of time. Absolutely. We skip down a couple pages. How, then, can the anti-capitalist cancer of the colonies be healed? If men were willing to turn the whole of the land from public into private property at one blow, this would certainly destroy the root of the evil, but it would also destroy the colony. So we, we can't do that. Uh, the trick is to kill two birds with one stone. Let the government set an artificial price on the virgin soil. A price independent of the law of supply and demand. This is all Wakefield, guys. This is not Mark. This is all Wakefield's suggestion. A price that compels the immigrant to work for a long time for wages before he can earn enough money to buy land and turn himself into an independent farmer. The fund resulting from the sale of the land at a price relatively prohibitive, 
prohibitory for wage, wage laborers. This fund of money extorted from the wage labor by a violation of the sacred law of supply and demand is to be applied by the government in proportion to its growth to the importation of paupers from Europe into the colonies so as to keep the wage labor market full for the capitalists. Mm -hmm. Under these circumstances, everything will be for the best in the best of all possible worlds. Yeah. Now, Holy remember, shit. Remember something, too, about early America. One of its ways of maintaining white supremacy was only white people could own property, and you had to own property to have the right to vote. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's a democracy, quote-unquote, but you have to ask what the demos is. Yeah. Demos wasn't black people. It wasn't women. We already know that. Holy crap. Yeah, it black. wasn't even non-property owners. Yeah. And they were making it harder to own property in order to exploit you. But go back. I mean, holy shit. For, for a group of people that build their ideology on let the market determine supply and demand. The market will fix itself. Don't get in the way. The only way for you to create capitalism in America was to artificially price out land at a price that was not based in the market at all, explicitly to keep people from being able to get it. Yeah. That's that's the only way it would work. And then you would use the money that you took in off of this off of this stolen land prices to import more wage laborers. Yeah. I mean, why do you think homesteading was such a big thing? Essentially, the, these you already erased indigenous people. Pretend they didn't exist. Brutally ethnically cleanse them. But... Why, why couldn't you just grab up some of that land? They they had to put a price tag on it so you couldn't grab that up. And that's where, like, homesteading were these special opportunities to go out west. You know, I mean, the gold rushes, you had to have something yeah. at the end of the rainbow to go out there. You couldn't just claim the land from the beginning. Yeah. Um, so that's where some of these moments were so big because they made them big. And that's what we're really talking about here. You know, you have two examples. And you can clearly, you know, everybody sees, oh, America's the richest country in the whole world. Da, da, da. And obviously, the everyday people aren't. Yeah. Our, our life expectancy is, what, 30th? Yeah. Our uh, uh, health, you know, our, our infant mortality rates, like 27th. Uh, our literacy rates like 28th. We're, we're barely top 30 in a country, but we're the richest country in the world. But on top of that, Australia's not. No. So, you know, you had the same Petri dish there, too. You have to have two things. First, you have to find this land with just people that you decide aren't human. Yeah. Whatever. Cool. And you have to ethnically cleanse the living shit out of them because there's nobody nowhere with no people. No. There just isn't. There's no nature. That's a white supremacist concept. Antarctica. Okay, fine. I'm just saying. Okay, fine. You get the penguins working for you. You run the <laughs> fuck down there. But anyway, there's nowhere that you could live climate-wise that yeah. doesn't have people. Yeah. So you have to ethnically cleanse these people. Just pretend they're not there. And then you get your petri dish of capitalism. And then you obviously have to do this brutal force of capitalism because it didn't happen naturally. Nope. And then even in both of those two examples, one stayed very poor. The other one had a glut, a glut of na America has a glut of natural resources. So regardless, it's not the capitalism that makes us rich. It's the insane natural resources. And the other thing, even more so, the chattel slavery. You know, you had to have the insane slave market and the insane natural resource. That's what all of the wealth of this country is built on. We had, and like, right now it's just maintaining it from Monroe Doctrine and imperialism and stuff like that. We had a 200 year head start on everybody else because of chattel, because of slavery, because of chattel and abundant resources. Don't and abundant, that too. Yeah, but, but mostly the chattel Australia slavery. Australia had the amount the amount of coal and oil that is in Australia that they are mm -hmm. just now getting to tap. I mean, they've got insanely good natural resources um again 200 when people point out how awful it is you know oh god we point stalin oh the gulags are awful oh they, they would imprison political pe political 
uh, dissonance yeah. and make and it we're work. We're not even going to tap into the, the, the dishonesty in a lot no, of No, no, no. But even take <laughs> plenty. That, take that at its word. Take that at its face. If if <laughs> if what the if what the the Soviet government did was say, okay, political dissonance. We're going to round you all up and put you in labor camps to help us uh, mass industrialize quickly. That's still infinitely better than what we did in this country. We still do that. We yeah. have fucking private prisons with actual slavery going on. We have we public still, prisons. We with do actual all of that. On. The we private prisons the, are just worse. The worst thing we keep accusing them of. We do it still, and we did it worse with slavery. How do you not? I, I don't want to get into whataboutism because that's not what this is about. But how do you not see that? How do you not understand? How ludicrous it is that you're holding everybody to a different standard than you hold us to. It's all it's all similes effect and the fact that we're hidden from it. God, those two it's things. just a nightmare. That's those two things. <sighs> back back to this horrible racist. Yeah. On the one hand, the enormous and continuous flood of humanity driven year in, year out onto the shores of America leaves behind a stationary sediment in the east of the United States since the wave of immigration throws men onto the labor market there more rapidly than the wave of immigration to the west can wash them away. Great imagery here. This is very much. Oh, yeah. Great. great. Yeah, just on water the, people. On the other hand... The American Civil War has brought in its train a colossal national debt, and with it, a heavy tax burden. The creation of a finance or, 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 aristocracy. aristocracy, thank you, Jesus, of the vilest type, and the granting of immense tracts of public land to speculative companies for the exploitation of railways, mines, etc., in short, it has brought a very rapid centralization of capital, which we've talked about. Go back, uh, chapters 25? Chapter 25 is yeah. all centralization? Yeah. Um, the Great Republic has therefore ceased to be the promised land for immigrating workers. Guys, this is 1865. Mm-hmm. What, right? Eight, we, the land of the free and the welcoming of immigrants. It was over. 1860. It was done. <laughs> they called it like 200 years ago. Oh, God. Uh, capitalist production advances there with gigantic strides, even though the lowering of wages and dependence of the wage labor has by no means yet proceeded so far as to reach the normal European level. Uh, basically, we hadn't caught up with them in terms of our exploitation yet. Don't worry, Marx, we caught up. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. We got there. We we got there. Uh, and that's that's... That's it. It kind of feels a little anticlimactic that that's where we that that's the end of the book because again it should have been chapter thirty two with the work yeah. the expropriators. No, are but that's good. That's good. And I will reiterate again the difference between America and Australia. And again, Australia it's not like it's the poorest country in the world, but that's because it hasn't been attacked like the global south. Yeah, I would. Yeah, you're, you look at it in the same land. You look at Germany and France and and, yeah. and the, the the our front Western allies. Yeah, you know. Right, but I mean that—that's what you—that's what you want to see. And here we go. Overall GDP, according to the IMF, it's U.S. number one, and then China, behind, and then Japan, Germany, U.K., France, India, Italy, Brazil, wow. Canada, South Korea, Russia. South Korea is wow. just a U.S. colony. Wow. Australia's fourteenth. Wow, it's between Spain and Mexico. Interesting. So yeah, I mean we're talking a middle European type country economy wise, All right. All right. and so it's not the superpower the U.S. is. No. You know, I mean, you're talking one in like 14, and there's a big gap between one and three. Not one and two. China's catching up pretty good. Yeah. But, one and three. but that's the other superpowers in the world have been communists. Yeah. You know, and, and the U.S. did this entirely on slavery and abundant resources. First, there was, of course, the abundant resources and the ethnic, brutal ethnic cleansing that brought us the eastern, like the 13 colonies region through up to Missouri. Okay. Yeah. And you had the, the explicit slavery in, in the South. And then once the Civil War hit, and that couldn't be legal anymore, and obviously the 13th Amendment shit, but 
couldn't be explicitly legal without throwing you to prison anymore. Yeah. There was the westward expansion, the gold rushes, the oil tycoons, the railroad tycoons. And don't forget, don't you're, we're glossing overload on the westward expansion. Land that we absolutely stole. We oh, again. It wasn't like we got again. America and we got More. the big old stamp of America. We had to go steal that from people that were absolutely there and living there. And, oh, and absolutely. other countries I mean, even that had it. Even I mean, if we're you talking, want to say that their shit, we just took it. Yeah, I mean, we're still talking brutal ethnic cleansing. You know, Mexican-American war, Louisiana purchase shit, all that stuff. And, and so you had the gold rush, the railroads, the oil tycoons. And then as soon as that was over, then you, we kicked off our imperialism. Our Monroe Doctrine shit. Yeah, speaking of the Monroe Doctrine, have you? And it's it is it, as this tradition. It's my one time I'm going to plug the dollop on the show. Have you the filibustering, the concept? So we've all we all know the, when we say you face filibuster, it's the thing you do on the Senate floor. Have you heard yeah. of the concept of filibustering? Not related to that Senate thing. A completely different word when you talk mm. about Monroe Doctrine. No, there was this thing. That was going on. A, I, 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 it makes perfect sense. But and again, they, the episode on William Walker, it's an early dollop, yeah. goes over it. Uh, it was literally just capital, like rich white dudes. It like instead of being bored and running a company, they would just take like 40 dudes and say, I'm taking Nicaragua this week. And you just go and they were called. They were like considered like freelance pirates, kind of. Um. Oh, now, wow. to give you to give you time frame, this is like when Vanderbilt, like Vanderbilt, was very big into, and uh, so it was right when they hadn't built the Panama Canal yet. Before that, so you needed Nicaragua as like a really big overland path, and sure. they were just like, William Walker was the guy's name, uh, and just went down and, and with like an army of like forty dudes, and it was just like I'm taking Nicaragua today, and everyone was just okay with it. <laughs> Jesus, Christ. it's just bizarre the amount of audacity that like, we've had forever, our entire history, we've just been. Christ. So, so bizarrely out there with our, yeah. just, we don't give a shit, we will take what we want. Yeah. Oh, I also got to mention, too, of course, um, 60 years after the Civil War, the U.S. got to be the one uh, global imperial power that wasn't ravaged by World War One and Two. Yeah, it came in at the end and slapped some high fives and took some credit. You know, I mean, well, don't get us wrong, we did some great nuking. We, right. I mean, we nuked, we nuked like a boss. We right, were... right. I mean, let's talk about the U.S. and the, the World Wars. First World War, uh, we got a little bored. Yeah, and we, we got wanted our bored. steak, <laughs> our steak in Europe, and we went in. Uh, Second World War, we we wasn't touching it because they were killing each other off, and we we didn't. Oppose... That, was, that was great for us. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we we didn't oppose fascism. World Ford War could sell stuff to the Nazis. It was great. They're, they were killing the Soviets for us. It was all that kinds was awesome. of good. That was awesome. And then all of a sudden, uh, Japan wanted our Philippine oil that we were exploiting yeah. and bombed Pearl Harbor, and we went, shit, now we got to battle all the Axis powers, or we're going to get bombed shitless over this oil that we imperialize over here in the Philippines. Uh, I guess we got to fight these Germany guys we liked before because they're aligned with Japan. Let's go in on the last second. And while the Soviets are actually clearly going to win this war, oh, yeah. let's make it a little easier on them so we can make some like trade deals, weapons deals with oh, the Soviet yeah. Union before we recruit all the Nazis in Operation Paperclip to form NATO, oh, yes. uh, to establish a lot of the UN stuff, and to come over in the US government and start doing experiments on soldiers with nukes and diseases and all kinds of fun stuff. And oh, by the way, we're going to make some instant genocide genocide bombs and bomb Japan when everyone knows they're going to uh, give up in November or December. Anyway, I mean, it's just, it's, uh, there's on paper, all kinds of generals quote saying, we knew they were giving up by the end of the year, uh, but we wanted to give up 
a little bit faster. And, so, oh, it's, uh, look, and, we, and we really wanted to intimidate the Soviet that's Union. That's what we needed to wag our dick big time on the stage so, and so let everybody gonna, know who was going to be in charge. We're going to bomb them in early September twice so that they're going to give up by September 15th and we can go, early, look, the bombs caused it. Early August. Oh, early August, I'm sorry. So they can, it's on my birthday. It's how I okay. know. Uh, so they can give up on August 15th and we go, look, the bombs caused it when really the bombs just sped it up. And that was all, I, I think... Didn't Truman explicitly tell Stalin, like, you're going to see what we've got coming or something yeah, like that? I'm pretty sure. Yeah, it, it may be apocryphal, but yeah. it's, it's widely... That, that they basically, basically telegraph, like, you're going to be scared what we're showing you. Uh-huh. And, uh-huh. and then they dropped picture, those bombs. Those it pictures, was clear it was just to intimidate Soviet Union. It's so bizarre, those pictures in, now of, of FDR and Churchill and then just Stalin hanging. It's like... Man, if you're Stalin, how do you not want to punch every one of them in the throat? I know. Like, like the amount of restraint that man showed by not just murdering both of them. But he had to. It was for survival. I know, I know, but still. Survival instinct is magical. It really, really is. All right. All right, guys. That's all I got for Chapter 33. That's all we've got for Capital. Yeah. We, we, we... Freaking did it, guys! We done it. We done did it. We did the damn thing. (laughs) So, thank you again. We kind of did the, the... Congratulatory self masturbation yeah. at the beginning of this. I will, I will say, yeah, I mean, obviously, here's the cool thing is uh, we started off with this book. Uh, it was just me getting Nathan to read it, mostly because Nathan opened up and said he'd be willing to read it, seeing some of my views on things and knowing he can handle a lot of deep theory. And we said, well, we'll record it just in case people want to listen to it, in case it could be useful. We're, we're probably not necessarily going to make a podcast. At the time, I was recording three other podcasts simultaneously, and I was like, well, why not throw this in? Let's go. Right. And we didn't do this to do a podcast. We did this no. to read it together. And I told him we should do a discussion every few hours. And then we said, well, shit, let's record it just in case. Yeah. Well, you just in case is a real podcast. And the next time we come to you, we'll be moving on to other works because yes. we have become a thing. We've become a thing. And Thank it's, you uh, all for making us a thing. Thank you for making us a thing. We really, we really appreciate you making us a thing. Uh, again, the nice thing about this thing is, uh, this is exactly what it's going to be. We have no pretensions about any of this. No, uh, we're just going to continue reading books that we think are important <laughs> and that yeah. are nice, and we're going to keep putting them out there. Yeah. And if you guys want to listen, awesome. If you don't, we're going to do it anyway. I don't really care. Yeah. I mean, um, we. This is how me and Nathan are going to read. So, and if, if it benefits you, all the better. If it doesn't, this is how me and Nathan are going to read. There, there, there won't. We won't have to worry about. There's no. There's no yeah. advertisements. There's no nothing like that. You're just going to hang out and read some books. And guys. eventually I will put some other paraphernalia probably around this episode, like maybe a Twitter account or something for this. That'd be fun. Yeah, that no, way, I'd, like to, I'd, like, I'd like us to be able to clap back on Twitter. Yeah, that way uh, if people go, hey, I want you to read this book. Yeah. We can go, oh, yeah, we can. Or, oh, this other people we respect already did it. Uh, there's not a lot of podcasts, unfortunately, after reading theory, but but we might run no, into that. There are, there are, like I said, there are a lot of yeah. – our goal in this space was to provide something – that wasn't already there. It was. It right. was the reason I really love this. I, I love this so goddamn much because it is. There isn't a lot of really good. I mean, again, David Harvey has a really good series on Capital. If you if you if you finish this and you want another look on it, his his stuff is all available on on YouTube yeah. and on on iTunes, and he does a a. But that again, that's a a, a college course. It's him. It's it's lecturing yeah. a class on it. It's not. And that I, I feel like that's just a bad way to do theory like this. This needs to be a cooperative thing. Yes. Um, and so we're going to keep doing it. So, again, if you want us, if you've gotten through all of this, by all means, you are now entitled 
the second our Twitter goes up, you are entitled to tell us what we need to read. Because if you yeah. went through all of that with us and you want us to do something, by God, you've earned it. You deserve it. We will give you whatever you want. I will read whatever you want. Yeah. Unless our next, it's Ricardo our next, two are, our next two are picked. We're doing State and Rev. Yeah. And then we're doing Imperialism, uh, the highest stage of capitalism. capitalism. And then, I don't know. I mean, we... we but both of those are fair. I mean, uh, considering... Pretty quick. Compared to Capital, yeah, these are going to be like a walk in the park. Yeah. I mean, I've been thinking I want to read some Fana. Maybe we put it on here. We'll definitely tell you to read some Engels stuff. You'll yeah. catch some of that. Yeah. I'm going to mention in we State definitely Rev. Well, Gramsci is definitely in the pipeline. We definitely yeah. want to get to, uh, to Gramsci. I definitely want to get to what is Leninism sooner rather than later. But we're not really sure quite what direction we're going past imperialism, the highest stage of capitalism. Yep. So, suggestion. Maybe something we've mentioned we're going to read sometimes. Say, hey, go ahead and read it. Or... Maybe something we haven't suggested. Say, why are you ignoring this? And yes. we'll, you know, maybe scout it, see if it's good. Even if it's good, we might not do it. But if it's good and we think we can fit it in, we'll go there. You and know? again, if it's if it's if it's theory in this space, discussing it, even if it's bad, at a certain point, we're, we're probably going to read some <laughs> meh theory. We're going to read some stuff that we may not even dis. We may read some do stuff our that own we, Marx barbs. Well, no, we, we we may just because again, I think a big part of this is if you uh, if you want to understand, you can't just derive. Trotsky, we have strong opinions. Yeah. There are strong opinions yeah. there. It is hard to have strong opinions yeah. about something yeah. if you haven't analyzed. It's the thing I hate most about uh, right-wing reaction to Marx, is that their critique of it comes completely from misunderstanding. Yeah. I am still very new on this journey. I haven't read anything Trotsky's ever written. I haven't read a damn thing. So it is very hard. I, I, I firmly believe, and I, there are people I really trust that tell me the reasons that that... But... It, the same reason that I needed to read Capital to understand what the hell this was about, and the same reason that I think everyone from the right punching against leftism is an idiot because they obviously haven't read it. Yeah. Um, we're gonna probably have to dig into some stuff. That's like, now, hopefully, we'll pick short shit so that we don't have to suffer too terribly much. But I mean, that maybe if that's what you want to hear, just let us know. We, like I said, we're here. We're here to be productive. If we can be productive for somebody else other than ourselves, that's awesome. Yes. All of that said, this was great. Woo! Bye. Bye. Bye.